For some data problems, you may be more concerned with the state of data at a particular point. A ticket is booked or it's not. How many poetry submissions were made to the contest? This is relational data. For other problems, you're concerned with the change in data over time. Solar energy consumption, for example, or price behavior, and this is time series data. Timescale DB resembles a traditional Postgres database, but is supercharged for time series database. Timescale DB has queries that are 10x faster, is optimized for time series and advanced time series analytics, has automated continuous aggregations, columnar storage, and uses algorithms and memory efficient structures to compress your data so you can store more at a much cheaper price. Every new domain in databases has custom-built databases for that domain, and time series databases is no different. There are several different time series databases that make different trade-offs in how they do storage, how they do memory management, but the ones that are best in class are best in class, and TimescaleDB is one of those databases. If you have questions that are not time series dependent, you can still treat TimescaleDB as an efficient and cost-effective relational database. So it is in some sense a multi-model database. In this episode, we talk to Mike Friedman, the co-founder and CTO of TimescaleDB, and I hope you enjoy it. Our first book is coming soon. Move Fast is a book about how Facebook builds software. It comes out July 6th, and it's something we're pretty proud of. We've spent about two and a half years on this book, and it's been a great exploration of how one of the most successful companies in the world builds software. In the process of writing Move Fast, I was reinforced with regard to the idea that I want to build a software company. And I have a new idea that I'm starting to build. The difference between this company and the previous software companies that I've started is I need to let go of some of the responsibilities of software engineering daily. We're going to be starting to transition to having more voices on software engineering daily. And in the long run, I think this will be much better for the business because we'll have a deeper, more diverse voice about what the world of software entails. If you are interested in becoming a host, please email me, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. This is a paid opportunity, and it's also a great opportunity for learning and access and growing your personal brand. Speaking of personal brand, we are starting a YouTube channel as well. We'll start to air choice interviews that we've done in person at a studio, and these are high-quality videos that we're going to be uploading to YouTube, and you can subscribe to those videos at YouTube and find the Software Daily YouTube channel. Thank you for listening. Thank you for reading. I hope you check out Move Fast, and very soon, thanks for watching Software Daily. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You started Timescale in around 2014, and I want to get a sense for why 2014 was a time when a new category of database needed to be created? Because this was around the same time other time series databases also got created. Yeah, so we originally created Timescale really from our own need. Around that time, 2014, 2015, my co-founder and I, uh, Ajay Kulkarni, who we go back many years, 
we kind of re-synced up and we, we started thinking about it. it was kind of a good time for both of us to think about what the next challenges are that we want to tackle. And it seemed to us that there was this emerging trend of, you know, people talk about the digitization or digital transformation. And I, I it feels like a somewhat of analyst term, but I think it's it's really responsive of what's happening in that if you think about the large, big uh, IT revolution, it was about changing the back office. You know, what was used to be on paper was now in computers. And what we saw was somewhat the same thing happened to basically every industry from heavy industry to shipping to logistics to manufacturing, both discrete and continuous and home IoT. And, and so sometimes this gets blurred under IoT, but we kind of also think about it more broadly as operational technology, those which are you know not necessarily bits, but atoms. And a big part of that was actually collecting data of what those systems were doing. So it was about sensors and data and, and, and whatnot. And so when we initially looked at this problem, we were thinking about a type of data platform we would want to build to make it easy to collect and store and analyze that type of data. I think that's a way that we're slightly different or, or why our what we ultimately built as our database ended up being fairly different than a lot of other so-called time series databases. But that's because many of them kind of arose out of IT monitoring where they were trying to you know, collect metrics from servers where we were originally thinking about collecting data more broadly from all these type of applications uh, and devices around your world. So when we started building it, it was originally focusing mostly on IoT. And we kind of quickly ran into this problem that the existing databases out there and the time series databases out there were not really designed for our problems. They were often much more limited because they were focusing on this narrow kind of infrastructure monitoring problem where the data maybe wasn't as important. It was only of a very specific type. It, let's say they stored only floats. They didn't have to have extra metadata that they wanted to enrich their data to better understand what was going on, like through joins. And, you know, after basically working on this platform for about a year, we somewhat came to the conclusion that we actually need to build somewhat of our own time series database that was focusing on this more broad type of problem. And so that's what we do. And that's, that's what kind of led the development of uh, what became Timescale. Today, what are the most common applications of a time series database? Well, I could speak mostly about, you know, obviously TimescaleDB rather than, you know, as I, as I was alluding to before, a lot of, of the other time series databases are, are much more narrowly focused on IT monitoring or observability. And, you know, we really see our use cases across the field. We, we certainly see cases of observability. And in fact, we um, have subsequently built actually a, a separate product on top of TimeScale called PromScale that is really used for initially Prometheus metrics, but more broadly to make it easier to store observability data with TimescaleDB. But we see still a lot of IoT. We see a lot of logistics. We see financial data and crypto data. Uh, we see, you know, event sourcing. We see product and, and user analytics. You know, we see people collecting data about uh, how users are using their SaaS platforms. We see gaming analytics where people are, where, where companies are collecting information uh, about how, you know, people's virtual avatars are actually playing within the games. We see music analytics. You know, I like to 
think of the old way you used to find the pop stars. You went down to the smoky club, and now you collect uh, SoundCloud and Spotify streams, and you use that to identify who the next breakout artist is going to be. And so all of these are example of time series data, and it's really kind of what's so exciting to us is it's it's such a broad use case, so horizontal. Because basically, it's all about collecting data at the finest granularity you can. You mentioned a, an interesting use case there, the, the the event sourcing use case. So I'm not super familiar with event sourcing, but I often hear it in conversations about Kafka. So I often hear about people writing lots of events to Kafka and then doing things with those events. Can you tell me more about the event sourcing use case? Yeah, so Kafka was originally started as, in some sense, a really reliable way to do high-speed you know, buffering or queuing between different... It somewhat became the glue that was connecting a lot of your microservices. Obviously, over time, they started adding some you know, more limited capabilities around uh, KSQL, around trying to do simple analytics on Kafka... But I think, you know, fundamentally, even when you add those type of analytics, stream engines like Kafka are about building up a queue of data somewhat linearly. And then when you query, you're doing a linear pass across the data. When databases obviously worry a lot also about reliably storing data, but then build a lot of data structures and and reorganize the data and you know, have a lot of intelligence about how they can intelligently process the data and join the data and optimize all that query. That's, you know, 30 years of query planning uh, work uh, to make those types of queries much faster. So when we think about event sourcing, it's that we have, you know, I think there's a continuum again about what time series data means. Sometimes that's a continuous stream of uh, readings coming off of sensors. Those sensors could be servers. Those sensors could be, you know, machinery. They could also have discrete events. You know, it could be when we run TimescaleDB with our own Kubernetes infrastructure, the discrete events are actually Kubernetes events that are happening in our infrastructure. It could be in a gaming example, you know, when people, uh, when avatars, you know, perform different things in the game. With a website, it could be when a user is walking through, is, is navigating websites, and then when they go to different pages as part of your session. Uh, those are all effectively, there's a timestamp, there's a thing that happened, there's potentially additional metadata happening. And so that all becomes part of the same data set that you want to store in, in, in something like a time series database that you could then uh, process and analyze in various ways. What is the hardest part of operating a database company? I think, you know, for myself with a technical background, it's always knowing what not to work on. You know, there's, we kind of see this domain as so large in the sense that it's touching every company that has data, if they start collecting that data at the finest granularity, are going to be collecting time series data. So, Really, the opportunity is trying to figure out, we have a product that we believe is so widely applicable. The hardest thing is almost what, you know, saying what not to do, because all of it's kind of so exciting. What's an example of a time you said no? Well, I think there's different types of use cases you want to focus on. And the 
trade-offs are always you know how much certain technical needs are specific to one versus another. Uh, and I'll give you one concrete example. So if you look at financial data, and you know we see a lot of fintech and, and crypto and kind of even some of these you know, DeFi companies starting to use uh, timescale pretty seriously. Uh, but if you look at, for example, traditional hedge funds or other type of quant research, they do something that they call backtesting their algor- algorithms a lot. And that is they want to take the algorithms they have now and then decide how would this have run you know, a year ago against the current state of the market to basically see how well their algorithm would have worked compared to how the market actually operated. And one of the interesting things about uh, in the financial world is that you'll actually see market corrections. So you'll see that you thought that the earnings report of a company was this on January 1st, but actually come February 1st, there was a correction to what it actually was back in January 1st. So when you actually do your backtesting, you have to have a knowledge of, well, when I'm running this, what was my knowledge at the time? Because the state of the world, you know, what you knew about January 1st data on January 15th was actually different from what you knew what it was on February 15th. So some in that particular niche area, they call this often, uh, they refer to this as bitemporal data that the data has two different types of timestamps, the event time and, in some sense, your uh, awareness time or your system time. And you build a lot of knowledge about your temporal understanding of it at the time. Now, this is a fascinating area. I think there's lots of interesting stuff you could do here. And we have some support for this type of analysis, but we could go a lot deeper. It's just that you know the trade-off between how big a need for there is there here versus other types of you know, time series capabilities uh, we, w- we would want to spend our engineering and product efforts on. Tell me about the initial architecture for Timescale DB. So you're, you're based off of Postgres. What was the reasoning around that decision? So I think, as you point out, we're, Timescale is, is actually implemented as an extension on Postgres. So starting maybe... 10 or 15 years ago, Postgres started exposing uh, kind of low-level hooks throughout its code base. Uh, and so this is not like a, a plugin where you're running a little JavaScript code. And this is, you know, we get we have function pointers into, we get, you know, function hooks into the C. Postgres is written in C, and so TimescaleDB is, uh, for the most part, written in C. Uh, and so we have hooks throughout the code base um, at the planner, at various, sometimes in the storage, at the execution nodes. And so we are able to kind of insert ourselves and do a lot of optimizations as part of the same uh, process. And so you could ask the question of why not just implement a new database from scratch? Why build it on top of Postgres? And I think this really gets to that we always viewed ourselves as and. and we hear this from our users and community all the time that we are they are storing critical data inside TimescaleDB and they need it to A, work and be reliable. And they also need it to be, they have a lot of use case requirements. It's not this, again, narrow thing where you're collecting one metrics and all you're asking to do is you know, figure out the min-max average of a, of a certain metric. 
you want to do fancy analysis, you want to do joins, you want to do subqueries, you want to do correlations, you want to have views, you want the operational uh, maturity of a database, you want transactions, backup and restore, and all of the uh, replication and, and all of the above. And so, you know, it, some people say it takes maybe 10 years at least to build a reliable database. And, you know, we thought this was a great way in order to, you know, immediately gain that level of reliability. We ourselves are huge fans of Postgres. Uh, you know, it, it has such a, a great community and it also has such a large ecosystem. And so the idea is that effectively that entire ecosystem would work from us on day one. That means all of the tooling, all of the ORMs, all of your libraries would just work. And if you we support full SQL, not SQL-ish. So if you know how to use SQL, you could start using, and if your tools speak SQL, if you're running Tableau, if you're running Power BI, if you're running Grafana, if you're running Superset, those all just start working on day one. Now, the second part of it is, well, what does that mean to build a time series database on top of Postgres, you know, which clearly was designed more as a traditional transactional database, OLTP engine? And sometimes I talk about you think about this architecturally. And what I mean by that is you somewhat think about what your workloads look like and what that would mean from a software architecture. And maybe I'll give you a very concrete example. So starting maybe 10 or 15 years ago, if you look at traditional databases, you started seeing the growth of what people commonly now called as log-structured merge trees, LSMs. And this was a data structure that you know, goes back to the mid-90s. But I think you first saw you know, Google, Jeff Dean, and Sanjay Gimawat build something called LevelDB. And you know, the, the whole idea of an LSM tree was if you look at a workload that has a lot of updates, so with a lot of e-commerce applications, with a lot of social networks, you're constantly updating things. And traditional database, if you think about a disk, if you're doing a lot of in-place updates and these updates are randomly distributed across all of your user IDs, this means that you're going to cause your disk to do a lot of you know, random writes. On hard drives, that's particularly bad. You need to move the disk. Even on SSDs, it doesn't do great because SSDs still do a lot better to have sequential writes than random writes, the way the, internal, the internals of SSDs work. And so you started seeing this new type of database architecture called LSM trees emerge because people wanted to build databases that had a lot faster updates. And so on time, time series databases, on the other hand, don't typically have this type of workloads. So if you think of a stream of, of, of new observations with a, the timestamp, uh, these are typically about what's happening now. So it's typically about a stream of, up, of, of inserts that are about you know, this stock price now, this stock price now, this stock price now, or different, or you know, 100 or 1,000 or 100,000 different sensors all about what they're recording right right now. And so if you think about how you would then design the internals of your database and the data structures, when most of your writes are insert heavy, and particularly about the latest time interval, then what that would mean is the somewhat internal structure of your data should reflect that. So you should optimize your insert path 
to make it super efficient to perform inserts on the latest time interval. It doesn't have to be perfectly in order, but it mostly is about what's happening recently as opposed to what's happening a year ago. That said, timescale absolutely allows you to backfill data and perform updates or deletes to older data. It's just from a performance perspective, keeps all the recent stuff in memory and builds more efficient data structure to allow you to insert at at much higher rates. So for example, uh, on a single machine, if you're collecting a stream of, of, of records, each with several, let's say, 10 metrics, you'll be able to collect even one to two million metrics per second on a single, you know, pretty standard uh, machine. And so we see this kind of again and again, the way we think about architecting timescale is, is really thinking about what the workload looks like, that people often care about recent data and the way they want to manage their data changes as that data ages. They might want to optimize for even fast queries for the recent stuff. Uh, they might want to start reorganizing their data as it ages. They might want to start automated, automatically aggregating the data as it ages and dropping the raw data for the very old stuff to save, save space. So all of these things are what you'd want in a good time series database when it's not what you want from either a traditional OLTP database, nor if you have a, data, a, data, a traditional data warehouse or an analytical database, which doesn't think of this kind of operational view of time series so central to it. Can you tell me a little bit more about the pros and cons of building as a Postgres extension? Like, what, what are the pros and cons of, of, of having that underlying system that you're building on top of? Yeah, so I think there's two halves of that. One is, what were all the fun and hard engineering we had to do from day one? And two, what are uh, perhaps some of the ongoing limitations or complexities, and how are we addressing that going forward? You know, one of the fun things we've been able to do is, I think really, you know, have been lucky enough to have a really amazing engineering team. And so we've been able to do a lot of very kind of creative and advanced stuff, even in our little, you know, sandbox, which is Postgres, in ways that many people didn't think you could do. So one concrete example, many of your Listeners probably know that Postgres is a row-oriented database. So if you store a row of data, let's say with 10 metrics, it stores all of those 10 columns contiguously on disk. And that is great for a lot of workloads where you're trying to pull out uh, data row by row. It's also good if you're trying to, within one query, you know, access many of the rows, not necessarily all of them, but many of them. But there are uh, analytical workloads um, where you might only be interested in one particular column and, you know, you might actually go back for a year's worth of time. And in a traditional row-oriented database, you would have to, in this case, there's a, a billion rows over that year. You have to read those billion rows from disk and then pull out the single column that you want. Now, what came out you know, starting a couple, uh, maybe in the last uh, two decades, is this notion of column-oriented databases, where a lot of times in the data warehousing world, when all of your queries are these large column scans, because you don't even have indexes, then you would actually write your data not every 
the row being co-located on disk, but you'd write them on disk as large columns, um, and then you'd compress them. The downside of these is if you actually ever wanted to access rows, they were inefficient. So column-oriented databases were really good at large column scans. Row-oriented databases were good when you want to uh, just pull out individual rows. Turns out in time series workloads, you have both. You often get what you call wide shallow queries and then deep narrow queries. So wide shallow queries, you might be saying, I want to know all information about you know, my this set of devices or my stock portfolio from the last uh, week. While a deep narrow query would be, you know, tell me about this particular device or tell me about this particular ticker symbol over the year. And so what's interesting is that kind of row-oriented databases are better for the former, column-oriented databases are better for the latter. In the time series, you have both, but again, they often have the, the flavor that recent data is typically better accessed in row order, order form when long historical scans are better oriented in column-oriented form. And in fact, that's what we do in TimeScale. So what we do is we actually have a background engine that internally and asynchronously, transparent to the user, converts our representation from row-oriented after the data hits a certain age to column-oriented so you could enable those type of long scans. So we do a lot of advanced compression. Now, when people looked at this, they said, well, how do you store somewhat these columnar data inside Postgres, isn't Postgres itself have, you know, this row ordered nature at its lowest storage level. And while that's true, we were in some sense able to do a lot of clever engineering where while at some level we're storing these uh, compressed, we basically are building and storing what are compressed columns, you know, accumulate uh, a thousand rows of data according to certain keys that are accessed together a lot, um, kind of flip them on their heads, their columns, and now store those as highly compressed arrays in this underlying engine. Uh, and in fact, one of the neat things is because we do this, we could often, and what we do is we apply different compression algorithms based on the type of data it is. So we use one form of compression uh, for timestamps. We use another type of compression for floats, another type for integers. We use different compression algorithms for strings, whether or not they're strings with high entropy or low entropy. So it really allows you to really do this heavy optimization. While, yes, we had to, at some sense, work around the fact a little bit that Postgres at its lowest level until recently you know, had everything in row-oriented form. But sometimes I think it's fun when you're an engineer that challenges lead to new opportunities and you know we basically have able to build something that is competitive with most uh, native columnar stores, and yet it still builds on Postgres's reliability. So everything is done transactionally. All existing tooling works. This is all transparent to the users. Um, so sometimes you get uh, big wins. Um, I would say that you know it's uh, regarding your question. What are some limitations? Is that as many other engines. There's always places where you're looking to improve things. Um, so about a year ago, we launched the horizontal scale-out version of TimeScale uh, in TimeScale 2.0. And this obviously, uh, you know, that's not what Postgres was designed for. So we are basically, you know, building a distributed horizontally scalable database on top of Postgres. There is some aspects of Postgres. I, I talked about the various ways we're doing with storage engines. The latest versions of Postgres and Postgres 13 and 14 um, allow you to make better low-level changes to their to the Postgres' storage methods. 
Uh, they have this new interface called table access methods. And so this is all ways that we could continue to innovate on top of Postgres. And I think one of the really great things has been as Postgres and as the community continues to make contributions, and it's such an active, vibrant community, that also benefits everybody who's using Timescale. Uh, and one of the things that we've been proud of in the last year is we've, you know, as we've grown to mature, we just brought on um, really people whose job it is to have full-time upstream con contributions to Postgres, um, both in terms of code review and commit fests and, and contributions themselves. And so that's been a, a great way that we've uh, now started to more heavily give back to the community in a more direct sense. So like the interface for a Postgres extension what exactly does that does that expose to you? Like, how how deep into the Postgres internals can you reach and change? So it gets pretty deep, and it's I wouldn't really call it a. You know, sometimes when you think of an extension, you think of a really clear barrier where you know you think of an OS abstractions where you you know can make system call, and here's your like well defined system call interface. You know, I think one of the ways that Postgres allows you to build is that you have various hooks inside the code base at various parts of of the, you know, most DML or DDL changes. So when calls like create tables or alter tables come in, we could hook in there. When inserts come in, when upserts come in, when queries come in, we could hook in the planner, we could hook in the execution nodes, we could write custom uh, custom execution nodes that go into the plan. So like when a, a query starts getting executed, our code kicks in. So there's a lot of places we could hook into the internals. And we obviously do that in a, you know, careful way in best thinking about how we could kind of achieve the goals while obviously still maintaining, you know, the safety of transactions and and memory safety and, and whatnot. But but it's, you know, we, we are writing low-level code and see that is part of every query or insert that you're doing against hypertables, against timescales, uh, notion of a, of a partitioned table. Given that you're a professor at Princeton, as well as an entrepreneur, I, I'm curious, are there some outstanding theoretical problems that you've encountered as an entrepreneur, like given infinite time, you you might you might explore from a theoretical perspective. Yeah, so I should say it's a, it's a, my research background, my academic background is actually more in distributed systems and and storage systems than uh, historically in databases. I, I know for a lot of developers, these are heavily the same thing. Uh, for whatever reason, at least. In the academic community, these are pretty uh, distinct communities. I think that's also one way why I'm so excited with uh, Timescale 2.0. You know, now that it's actually a distributed database, and we could, when you look at what we can do on 2.0 plus the compression, we basically are able to now hit the petabyte scale, um, where I think you know it gets especially interesting for what what people could start doing. You know, more broadly. You know, I, when I wearing my academic hat for a minute, uh, you know, the way I typically look at problems, like what turn out to be good research problems and what drive, you know, systems problems is that historically, there have always been two areas. One is as systems or, or database researchers, 
uh, you get motivated by new application workloads. So in some sense, these are these are things that changed in the world that now what you were building before no longer applies to these new workloads. The other place where you get a lot of innovation was when the hardware and the device people change things underneath you. So if you think about a lot of the work that was happening with databases when they were designed for hard drives for spinning rust, you know, when we moved to SSDs, we started thinking about things differently. Um, you know, now actually some students at, at Princeton are looking about, you know, what does it mean to build uh, databases where you're storing all of your data on, you know, new types of NVMe type devices, or even when you use a blend of uh, NVMe like Optane drives with um, cheap SSDs like QLC. And so what does that mean for trade-offs between performance and cost when you actually are leveraging heterogeneous storage? And we actually already see this in the commercial world as well. You just probably see it a little bit coarser granularity. But for example, with Timescale, we and, and many and other databases, you have the notion of data tiering where you want to, you know, move, as data ages, again, this is a very time-centric view of the world, as data ages, you know, the, the most fresh data is usually in memory, the medium age data is on, you know, something like SSD, and the oldest data gets moved to, you know, slower storage that maybe is less performant, but still accessible. And again, you're doing this cost-benefit trade-offs. And continuing with these devices, I think there's obviously interesting questions about how you can over time combine, you know, traditional CPUs with GPUs to accelerate individual queries. And so I think, I think over, you know, if you look forward five or 10 years, I think you're going to continue to see this type of innovation where we start looking at all the various different types of uh, heterogeneous resources we have at hand, you know, different types of disks, even different types of, of compute devices and then start making them accessible. And, and, and I think the cool thing about having cloud services is you want to remove all of this complexity from your developer. Um, you know, you just want to give, and, and that's really been a core part of our design from Timescale from the beginning. We give you what looks like a single database table. We call it a hyper table, but you do a SQL, you insert into it, you query it, it just looks like a table. And yet that table could stretch across multiple different type of disk technologies. That table can stretch across multiple servers. You can treat that data as it ages differently. You can, you know, join your row, your row data with your columnar compressed data, and all that is transparent to the user. And so I think, uh, and I know I'm jumping around from <laughs> academia back to uh, industry, if you will, um, but I think the exciting part is how do we continue to build databases and other type of server infrastructure that makes it really easy for developers? Because they don't have to think about this. They don't have to think as much about performance optimizations. They don't have to think about operational aspects. It just works, and it's just easy and fast. And yet you could give them the benefit of this performance cost trade-offs of all the various types of existing and emerging uh, technology that's really coming. Um, and so I think, you know, there's lots of interesting opportunities there, both kind of academically, but also to make it real, to make it real, and to put it in developers hands. And I think um, that's a little bit what we're doing with Timescale, both with our database, but also with our, our cloud service that again, abstracts a lot of this complexity away from users. 
As the company has gone from like an earlier stage infrastructure company to a really advanced and larger scale infrastructure company, how have the sales challenges and customer success challenges changed? So I think that an important aspect is that we do think differently about the database we're building for our community and also the service that we're you know building commercially. So I think there's two things that are interesting. And, and one thing that you didn't exactly ask, but I, I thought you were, were going to, is that from an engineering perspective, you know, we ended up, you know, we obviously from the beginning we're building a database. And so we had, you know, a lot of you had a bunch of great engineers that were really fascinating by building databases. It was a low level, all the development is in C for the most part. I say for the most part because now we have some cool stuff going on in Rust. But uh, when we decided that, you know, to really then view our, if you will, commercial service, our, our go-to-market was really to be to enable cloud consumption, we ended up building a, a wholly separate, a completely new engineering team in order to do that. Because I think obviously the skill sets for um, building a cloud service is very different from you know building the underlying uh, database going so. Now, the second thing which we did was we really embraced the notion of making our database completely free to the community, and we're going to focus on our go-to-market as providing a fully managed cloud service. And so what that means is we adopted licensing that basically meant it's it's the core of our database is Apache 2, so fully open source. And then a, a number of the advanced features are somewhat akin to the same playbook that you see a number of the other software vendors like Elastic, Confluent, Redis, Cockroach, to some extent Mongo take, which is that it's free for people to use. It's It's all on GitHub. Uh, there's nothing that's enterprise or closed source, but there are a few restrictions. And in, in particularly, we call it the timescale license. In particularly, you can't basically run timescale DB as a service. You can't basically commercially offer timescale B as a service. The extent that Amazon can't run uh, that version of timescale DB as part of RDS or Azure can't offer that as part of, of Azure Postgres. Although they do, they can and actually Azure does offer the Apache 2 version of Timescale as part of Azure Postgres. Um, what that has allowed us to do is really double down on our community. So every database feature we build is free for anybody except Amazon or Azure or Google to, to use. And in fact, many do embed it as their own SaaS service and make it available to their own, their own users. But in doing so, this has really... So your questions are how have we thought about sales and how has that allowed it to scale? And I think that has been an important decision because in a lot of infrastructure companies, product is constantly faced with the question of, I have this cool feature. Do I make it a paid-only enterprise feature or do I make it a free feature and drive the community? And the great thing about the way we decided to, to do this, and in fact, that we said, our go-to-market is to provide a managed service. If you want a self-managed timescale, you can do so and it's completely free. It has allowed us to really, every database feature that we build makes it a better product for the community. 
And we don't say, hey, this is only in our enterprise version. But on the flip side, we can, you know, there is a healthy portion, I think, of the developer community who are increasingly saying, hey, I don't want to manage software anymore, particularly, you know, databases where, you know, it's not a stateless service that you're just going to spin up and down in Kubernetes. You know, that's the often your really critical business data or your critical information, and you want to make sure it's it's reliable and highly available. Um, you know, they say, I want to actually turn to a managed service to allow to take that weight off off of our engineering and ops teams. And for those, we could say, hey, we're going to provide you now a, a really great cloud service, and it's going to have all the great features of TimescaleDB, as well as over time, you know, more of a platform experience to really interact with your time series data in a, in a powerful way. And in doing this, I mean, you talked a little, you asked before about, you know, what it means for sales and what it means for customer success. Uh, we've really taken a developer first view of, of the market where we somewhat have what you call a bottoms up approach. Uh, people show up on our website, they sign up, there's a free trial within one minute, they have a database running in the cloud and they can immediately stop, start using it. They, in fact, we have people who have happily converted and have been users for years who have never talked to us. We are always very happy to be there, and we are obviously have a, a great support team all around the world who can work with people. But, you know, it's really enabling developers to basically be able to interact with you as they want to, you know, not as your sales team wants to interact with the developer. And so I think that has really been a core part of our of our strategy to help people, help people in the community, help developers, help customers, um, but do it on their terms and kind of do it from a very uh, bottoms up approach. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask the question because I'm sure people uh, listening are curious. But what are the points of comparison between TimeScale and the other prominent? time series databases? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest differences between TimeScale and effectively all of the other time series databases, and if you look at our name, we often refer to ourselves as the relational database for time series and not just as the a time series database. Because if you look at, for example, what some other people refer to as time series databases, it's things like if you see some lists, things like obviously Influx, which many people have heard of, Prometheus, Graphite, OpenTSDB, Amazon Timestream now, and other things. Many of these, like let's say Prometheus or Graphite, or I think there's M3DB, these were all really designed for IT metrics. So they store floats, and that's basically it. If you want to do joins, good luck. If you want to do Something, I mean, Prometheus obviously supports PromQL. Graphite has an HTTP interface. Influx keeps changing it. It starts something InfluxQL, which was SQL-ish. It dropped that. It moved to Flux. They're now maybe doing something SQL-ish again, but they also have this new IOX engine, which is like the 4.3 write. So I, I think that what people get with Timescale is really the ability to store both their time series data as well as their relational data. And that turned out to be really, really powerful. In fact, you know, if you were looking, one of the common deployments that in fact 
Influx sales engineers recommend is to deploy Influx with Postgres or Influx with Mongo because you often have data, metadata, that you actually can't store inside Influx's tag model. Even if you try to shoehorn it, its carnality would, would quickly blow up and it would become very inefficient and you would run out of memory. And so the answer is, well, if you want to do these type of queries, deploy this time series database and deploy a relational database, and then write application code that joins them. And time scale, the answer is, well, just, you know, you have a hyper table with your time series data, you have a relational table with your other data, you could build foreign keys between them if you want, and you do a join at query time. And that is operationally much simpler. It's much faster developer, you know, it's much better developer experience and much better developer productivity. And if you remember, when we started, we talked about in 2015, we were building this IoT platform and we were frustrated. That was one of the frustrations we had. We were using one of these time series databases and we wanted to do this query. And we realized that the additional information we wanted was in our our Postgres, wasn't in our time series database. So it took us another four weeks to actually go through the engineering sprints in order to roll out the ability to do that one query. Well, in TimescaleDB, it would be writing a new join, and it would be out in an hour. So I think the extent to which time scale is really a relational database for time series or is Postgres with superpowers is really, I think, one of the reasons why um, people are finding such great ease of use and developer productivity compared to a lot of the other much more narrow time series databases. If you were not working on timescale DB and you had to start a company, what would you start a company around? I'd have to think about that a little bit more. You know, we're, we're finding, we're so excited about, I really feel like we've, we're only started in this journey of, of what we see as, as the future of data. I don't have a good answer for you today. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because obviously, as you pointed out, I'm also an academic and I think there are always good technical questions that you come across. Uh, and certainly building our own timescale cloud, uh, you know, we see a lot of, I, I see there's a lot of interesting stuff that's happening in cloud operations. I think, for example, we actually have some research that's starting to ask the question, if you look at most distributed systems, they were, you know, databases are primary backup, you know, even even things like Paxos, where you have multi-node replication, it was all that you're doing. You're all doing recovery at the application space. When, if you think about trends that are happening in the cloud, the decoupling of compute and storage, um, which you see, for example, in stateless sets and Kubernetes, which is a, enabled by network attached disks and network attached storage that the clouds are enabling. Which, by the way, we take advantage in TimeScale Cloud to build kind of decoupled compute and storage and for our database, um, I think this actually leads to interesting questions about rethinking, for example, how high availability works at a much more cost-effective way. Because today, for primary backup, you often would pay 2x because you need to run two servers. While if you could take advantage of some of this decoupling in the cloud, then it could get you almost as good at a tiny fraction of the cost. And we're you know, looking at some research on how to drive down even recovery time by 
when you have false positives of failures, being able to start roll out and, and roll back if it is false positives. Anyway, details. But you know, I, I I think there's a big difference between what are interesting technical problems and what I are good commercial opportunities. You know, there's there's demand, the, the there's large market demand, and so forth. So I'm not I'm not sure I have an answer because I've just been so focused on uh, building and scaling time scale. An area that I consider timescale somewhat adjacent to is that of data engineering. And obviously, you're not like directly a data engineering product. You're more of, uh, you know, you're a database. You're heavily used by operations people. You're used by a wide variety of applications. But you're going to be a source for a lot of data engineering applications. And I wonder, from that vantage point, what have you seen around the world of data engineering? Like, how are data engineers interfacing with timescale? And just to be clear, when when you're talking about data engineering, you mean the people who are building the pipelines to often serve data science or machine learning pipelines? Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah, so we absolutely see timescale as uh, part of data science pipelines, and interestingly, in actually a couple different ways. First is, you know, somewhat the what you'd expect that companies are actually storing their data in, you know, timescale becomes the both source and sync of that data. You know, they build um, upstream ingest pipelines, that data comes in, it gets stored in timescale. And then you have various data scientists who are going to, you know, query that data to run various models and training and and inference and whatnot. And we see timescale being used both on the training side, um, as well as the inference side as a, a real-time serving layer for, you know, for their uh, data models. The other place that we, uh, and, and actually let me, let me add on, again, this comes from part of Timescale's benefit from building on the operational maturity of Postgres in that Timescale allows you to have multiple read replicas attached to your primary database. And those read replicas can be synchronous. That is, they can be exact copies of your primary such that uh, before any data is committed to your primary, it's safely uh, and reliably stored on the the replicas. You know, in case there's any failures of the primary, you always have a spare copy. Those read replicas can also be asynchronous. So, uh, transactions will commit when it's just written to the primary, and then they are asynchronously copied to the replicas, usually pretty quickly, but that avoids, let's say, a failure of the replica or, you know, all of a sudden a burst of new ingest. It, it you know, that allows those inserts to return more quickly. The advantage of also asynchronous is what often teams do is they actually use those async, uh, asynchronous replicas, those read replicas, to basically be used by their data science teams. So their data science teams can start writing crazy queries against their read replicas, and you could be have greater confidence that your primary database, which is kind of the operational core of your application, uh, isn't going to you know, be disrupted by all of the craziness that your data scientists are doing. You know, obviously, some people might want to further kind of decouple it through other types of uh, ETL jobs or Kafka or whatever. But, you know, this has been a big win for teams to also, again, faster to deploy things faster, easier to quickly be able to spin up a read replica and hand it off to a data science team. 
Um, the other interesting things we've actually seen timescale deployed on is actually we've seen it being used as to monitor the quality of data pipelines. So imagine that you've trained a model, you've deployed a model into production. One thing that you're doing is as you're you're you know doing queries against your model as you're performing inferences, you're also basically measuring the quality of those ins- of those inferences. And what you start doing is you could start seeing as hey, does my model over time seem to actually no longer achieve the same type of uh, accuracy that it used to? You know, possibly because the you know if I could <laughs> talk a little. Machine learning, you know, if if the underlying uh, distributions that what you changed on changed, if they're non-stationary, what you're going to want to do is retrain your model, you know, given the new data distributions. And so what we've seen people do is in applications where, you know, sometimes your underlying data does change, the distributions change, they want to determine when they should rechange it. So actually timescale plays a role in actually monitoring the quality of their inferences to basically tell data engineers when they need to start retraining their models. That's a cool application. Well, as we begin to to wind down, give me your perspective on the future. What is next for TimeScale? What are the problems in the next five years that you're going to be focused on? I think the biggest thing, obviously, is we spend our first couple of years obviously building our database. And, you know, we have a lot of really exciting things still in the pipeline. A big thing last year, we obviously launched uh, our, our horizontally scalable version of TimeScaleDB. Um, but there's a lot of uh, stuff that I think we're still building to continue to make it, you know, we see fast, easy, cost-effective, and worry-free. We want our database to be super easy to use, continue to focus on developer experience. We want it to always be highly performant. We're continuing to have various um, both short-term and longer-term R&D projects around making it more performant. Uh, we want it to be cost-effective. Again, I talked about these you know, different types of you know, how to do compression, how to take advantage of heterogeneous storage to always make it you know, super efficient for users and to make it worry-free. We really want to be a, build a highly reliable database that developers don't have to worry about. You know, when we kicked off Timescale, we I think the the title of of my co-founder's blog post was was when when boring is awesome. That is, you want your database in some sense to be boring because you don't want it to wake you up at 3 a.m. with a problem. But you also want it to be awesome because you know you never have to worry about it not giving you the type of scale and performance that you need. And the second part of that is really building the cloud experience to enable that still easy, fast, cost-effective, and worry-free. You know, we think that the modern developer wants an experience that looks much more like a service that they just get an endpoint, whether or not that endpoint is SQL or, or even something else. Um, I mentioned earlier, I talked about our product PromScale, which enables Prometheus with TimeScale. And so there you could get SQL or PromQL or, or other uh, other interface in the future. And we want to make it that, you know, they have this amazing time series experience. They don't worry about scale. They don't worry about performance. And, you know, they don't work about as much about costs. And it just works. And I think that's what, and it could really allow the developer now to focus on the application they are trying to build. And so, you know, in many things, when trying to do all these, it will 
know, there's, uh, I think we've done a lot of great things in the last couple of years, but I, I think there's a lot of great things still, still to do. Mike, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks a lot, Jeff. I had fun.